From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In Washington, there's agreement on a stimulus package as coronavirus cripples the economy, what it means for Coloradans trying to make ends meet. Then, another kind of virulent encounter. Someone on a skateboard just called me names. Go back to where you come from. One Coloradan's experience with anti-Asian sentiments. Then, isolation plus unemployment plus anxiety. A Colorado physician says it's the perfect recipe for suicide, which is why she's talking about gun storage, especially with kids at home. So this isn't gun control. This is about safety when people are going through tough times, which I think we all are right now. And why the term social distancing drives one psychologist bananas. We should be physically distancing, but socially connecting. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Congress and the White House appear to have reached a deal on a massive coronavirus response package. This is a wartime level of investment in our nation, according to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. CPR's D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim is going to walk us through it and how members of the Colorado delegation have contributed. And hi, Caitlin. Uh, This bill, the third phase of a coronavirus aid package, is worth almost $2 trillion. What's in there? Well, the text for the bill isn't out yet, but we're told it includes direct cash assistance, uh, $1,200 per adult, $1,200 per adult for those making up to $75,000 a year, $500 for kids. It bolsters unemployment insurance with an additional $600 a week on top of what states pay for four months, $130 billion for hospitals, $150 billion for state and local fund, a $367 billion loan program for small businesses, and a half a trillion dollar lending program for industry, cities, and states, with specific amounts earmarked for, like, let's say, the airline industry. Now, that fund will have oversight, and that was a sticking point for Democrats. They wanted it, and it'll have it now. Are there elements of this package that Colorado's delegation was particularly focused on securing? I think one thing all members of the Colorado delegation have been stressing is the impact on workers and small businesses and employers. So for Democratic uh, Representative Joe Neguse, cash payments um, was an important part of it. This is what he had to say. Personally, I, I have long believed that the Congress needed to act boldly in ensuring that there is direct monetary relief to families and workers and small businesses uh, here in Colorado and across our country. And you said that's in the package, $1,200 per adult up to a certain income, right? Right. Um, Though that's less than a proposal that uh, Senator Michael Bennett originally put out there to give every adult $2,000. Bennett's counterpart, Republican Senator Cory Gardner, also offered a number of proposals for this package, and some elements were included, like his idea of a business stabilization fund and changing unemployment insurance to allow workers to collect uninsurance Um, uninsurance employment while still on a company's payroll. If they're not getting paid, um, the goal is to stop employers from actually laying off people. Unemployment insurance. The first two relief bills made it through Congress at warp speed, relatively speaking. Why did this one take so long? Well, this is a huge bill. And for some perspective, it's about double the Obama stimulus package uh, during the Great Recession in 2009. 
everyone wants to get it done quickly, but they also want to get it done right. And that said, in many ways, this bill is moving a lot faster than a normal bill would. There were no hearings. There's no testimony. Senate Republicans started drafting it a week ago and began negotiating with Democrats a couple of days after that. And over the weekend, they presented the bill to House leaders. And I think this is where things got sticky. Away from Washington, we've been hearing a lot about the partisan wrangling over this package. Walk walk us through those divisions. Yeah, this needs to pass a Republican-controlled Senate and a Democratic-controlled House. Mm-hmm. And even in the Senate, the math isn't on uh, Mitch McConnell's side. He needs 60 votes, and usually Republicans have 53. But with one GOP, GOP senator sick with COVID-19 and others in quarantine, McConnell was calling for votes when he was down five senators. So Democrats had an unusual amount of leverage. And did Democrats get everything they wanted? Short answer, no. Here is Democratic Representative Diana DeGette. We don't think there's enough state aid in there, aid for SNAP, which is food stamps, health care funds. There's no protection in the Senate bill against eviction. So House Democrats put out their own phase three bill uh, earlier this week. And on the Republican side, they complained it included a lot of unrelated items like policies to reduce emissions in the airline industry or early mail-in voting or same-day voting registration. So really, no one, Democrats or Republicans, got what they wanted in this bill, in this phase three bill. And actually, there is even talk right now of a possible phase four package. But for the most part, everyone agrees that something needs to be done and needs to be done quickly. And it's a deal with enough of what both sides wanted to hopefully pass the Senate today. And then we'll see what happens in the House. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Washington reporter Caitlin Kim talking about the third stimulus bill, which congressional leaders look like they've reached a deal on. Okay, we're in the midst of a pandemic caused by a novel coronavirus. It leads to a disease called COVID-19. President Trump, though, has used another name for the virus, and he was asked about this recently. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why comes from China. I and want to be accurate. Yeah, please, John. Please. You. Uh, I have a great, I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. So this is one issue I raised with U.S. Senator from Colorado Cory Gardner. We spoke Monday while he was in self quarantine. Gardner met with a constituent in Washington who later tested positive for coronavirus. You can listen to the full conversation about a relief package at CPR.org. But here is Gardner's take on the president's use of Chinese virus. Well, look, certainly this virus did come from China. We all know that. I think China did some horrible things when they lied about this happening. We had journalists arrested who were talking about it. I don't think this is something that uh, the American people are in tune with. I think the American people are in tune with what are they going to do to put food on the table? What are they going to do to pay for rent? Is their job going to be in existence? I don't think they're weighing in on the day-to-day conversation of should we call it this or should we call it that? They're scared as hell for their lives. Well, I met a man who's concerned about both his livelihood and the president's rhetoric. Chen Ng owns two coffee kiosks in Denver. 
We sat at a high-top table at a comfortable distance, and holding back tears, he told me about an encounter he says he had this past weekend. Well, I was walking my dog this weekend uh, at Southland Mong and uh, my little pups, and uh, someone on the skateboard just called me names. Go back to where you come from. Pick up your and go back. And uh, I didn't do nothing about it. I mean, I didn't offend nobody, minding my own business, walking my little pug. And it's just not right. I contributed to society. I'm not on government handout. I own two small little business. And that's uncalled for, really. Chen's from Singapore. He's lived in the U.S. for more than 30 years. He recalls a racist incident when he first arrived. Someone spit on him. But he hadn't experienced something like that since until now. I asked him why he thought it happened now. Well, President Trump called it the Chinese virus and I'm Asian. You know, maybe that's why. I, I don't know. Chen came to the U.S. for an education, planned to go back to Singapore, but fell in love with the U.S. and with a woman here. His wife voted for President Trump. Chen himself can't vote as a permanent resident, but he supports some of Trump's policies, just not his rhetoric. He's just not very respectful. I mean, I I don't know. The word he used is just not very sensitive about ethnic groups. Anywhere I go, just don't feel comfortable out and about. As for business these days, with his coffee stands, Chen says it's horrible. It's not nobody's fault. The situation happened. We just have to hunker down and uh, wait till this thing is over. Chenning, a Denver-area coffee seller. We are collecting and airing Coloradans' experiences in the face of coronavirus. So send us a voice memo about how your life has changed. The email address is coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. It's not an email Peter Lowy of Denver was expecting from his healthcare provider. Kaiser Permanente checking in should he think about storing firearms or lethal medications while he was home social distancing. I, I was a little shocked to have gotten it because I've never been at risk of, of harming myself or other people. But uh, I think mental health and kind of the stigma about talking about mental health, especially in young men, is um, in many ways another global pandemic that's being exacerbated by the current one. And safe storage is especially important right now, says Dr. Emmy Betts, emergency physician and co-founder of the Colorado Firearms Safety Coalition. She says coronavirus has created a sort of perfect storm. It's lots of people being understandably scared or anxious, uncertain about the future because of COVID. And then certainly financial stressors, people facing job loss, those things leading then some people to decide to buy firearms. Maybe they haven't had them, maybe they're just buying more. And then people being at home, with especially kids being at home. Um, it's like a perfect storm with potential for suicide and other forms of accidental or intentional injury. And so you are advocating, as you did before the pandemic, for safe storage, but it feels especially important to you right now? Absolutely. I think 
you know, for parents who have guns in the home, for whatever reason, I think this is the time to really reassess how they're stored to make sure that they are locked and inaccessible to all kids, all teenagers, I would argue, too. You know, even teens who've been trained to, to safely handle a weapon are under a lot of stress right now and can act impulsively. And this is a time for people to really just check in with how things are stored at home and make sure that they are locked up safely. And what are the best ways of doing that? You know, there are a lot of different options, and I and many, if not all of them, are available online, so you don't even need to go out to the gun store. There are different kinds of locking devices. There are lock boxes that, you know, you have to have like a pin um, or some kind of code or key or fingerprint to open, so only the one parent or two parents can access it. There are also ways, you know, to unload and disassemble weapons to store them. Some people don't want to do that if they have a gun for personal protection. But again, these quick open lockboxes are an option for people who have guns for protection that hopefully could still fit their needs, but um, also prevent those tragic instances where a kid reaches for a gun because they're playing or because they're feeling overwhelmed. What about off-site storage? You and I have talked about that in the past. You know, there are gun stores and some law enforcement that will store something off-site for you. That becomes a little trickier given the fact that people are isolated, I suppose. Right. So it is a little trickier, you know, and we need to be really careful about not going out more than we need to right now and not risking spread of the disease. At the same time, if we're facing potentially a long period of this, you know, some families may decide that the safest thing to do is just to move guns out of the home for a while. So you can call local stores or police stations to see if they offer storage. Always call ahead. Don't just show up. Are you afraid that the suicide rate is going to climb? Absolutely. You know, we know that unemployment, financial stresses can contribute to despair and then increased risk of suicide. And so that's certainly something that we need to be watching over the coming months. Um, I think when you then add on sort of this unprecedented anxiety and existential fear, um, I think that's a big concern. And then the gun piece is one too. You know, we know that gun sales are up recently because of people's fears, even though I should say there's no evidence that buying a gun right now is necessary. And please don't run out and buy one, especially if you don't know how to use it. But we know that having a gun accessible in the home increases the risk of suicide because if somebody's really feeling down and they reach for a gun, there's probably not a second chance for them. When there are kids at home, and we know that that's happening more now with schools closed, what do we know, what does the data tell us about the vulnerability those children face if there's a gun on the premises? Yes. So, you know, many people think about the accidental shootings, the horrific stories of, you know, the five-year-old who's playing and finds the gun. And although those numbers are overall small, they are are just devastating for families. And so it's important to remind parents that kids find everything. (laughs) And so really things need to be locked up, not just hidden. Um, But I think we also really need to look at the teenager adolescent population. We know in that population, about 40% of all suicides are by firearm, most often a parent's gun. You know, and as parents, we don't want to think our kids would ever do that, but kids do. And and they're grappling with big emotions just being teenagers and then the, the added stresses we're going through right now. I, I really worry about how that's going to weigh on these on these youth who might feel more isolated. And so, you know, we need to be doing all the other things to check in with each other and, and try to stay resilient during this time period. Um, 
but locking up firearms, locking up potentially dangerous medications right now can can really make a difference. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned something other than firearms, dangerous medications. Yeah, I can imagine someone listening uh, who might have heard you say earlier, you know, please don't go out and buy a firearm, thinking, why are we talking about firearms in particular? Why aren't we talking about rope? Why aren't we talking about, well, you, you talked about medications, but knives. The reason that we talk about firearms in particular in the context of suicide is because they are the most lethal method of suicide. So when someone attempts using a gun, about 90% of the time, that person will die. And that's a higher um, a higher rate than for any other method. So yeah, we should be talking about locking up toxic medications as well. It's really hard to lock up everything that someone could potentially strangle themselves with, cut themselves with, and so forth. And that's why we still need to be looking for warning signs, checking in with each other. But guns are particularly lethal. And, you know, this is something that the firearms community supports as well. Um, There are a number of organizations like the National Shooting Sports Foundation, the Department of Defense, the VA, all support really this focus on locking up firearms when someone is at risk of suicide. So this isn't gun control. This is about safety when people are going through tough times, which I think we all are right now. And it's interesting that this message is is coming from the health community, from insurers. We heard from the gentleman who has Kaiser that got an alert about safe storage during COVID-19. Is that a sea change, do you think? No, I I mean, I think that these efforts were going on before COVID. Um, I think there's been growing recognition really over the past couple of years that this needs to be a big part of suicide prevention and um, looking out for each other. I think, though, there's in the era of COVID, appropriately, a new focus also on mental health and resiliency as we're going through this time. And so these messages about firearm safety aren't new and about firearm storage aren't new, but it's a good time to revisit them. And I think that's particularly true given the what I would say is a worrisome trend of first-time gun buyers purchasing weapons maybe have received no training, maybe have not purchased storage devices. Um, and so for, for all the people who have gone out to get a gun, I think it's really important that they learn how to be a responsible and safe owner. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. Dr. Emmy Betts, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at CU and co-founder of the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition. People with disabilities and caretakers face greater challenges during this pandemic. Jessica Yarmoski reports. In Edwards, a mountain town two hours west of Denver, Karen Anderson is trying to navigate the pandemic with added challenges. It's not the easiest for a blind person up here. Anderson is blind and is currently caring for her husband, who has bacterial pneumonia. Her husband tested negative for COVID-19, but health officials told him to isolate at home anyway. Anderson says the little daily tasks you'd never think of as being hard are extra hard right now. Her neighborhood doesn't do home mail delivery, and normally residents drive to the post office to get their mail. That's a, that's an issue because I can't go get the mail, you know, and, and I, I can't expect others to continually do that, but my husband can't do it right now at all. And a quick trip to the grocery store is almost out of the question. She could take the bus, but says the neighborhood can be difficult to navigate as a blind person. She also worries about bringing something home that would make her husband more sick. Neighbors and others have stepped in to help. 
Recently, the director of a local food bank got in touch. And she said, how would I bring you some food tomorrow? And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that's one person that just reached out and that was amazing. There's no question about it. The COVID-19 pandemic can be scary for anyone. But the crisis takes an extra toll on people living with disabilities. The, the 80% of people that get mild symptoms, that's, that's not our community. That's Julie Riskin, executive director of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. They advocate for people with any kind of disability, whether it's physical, mental, or a chronic illness. One priority is making sure people with disabilities across the state have access to accurate information about and resources for COVID-19. Riskin's organization is examining the impact of moving most services to drive through and suspending public transportation in some areas. Both moves may make life harder for people with disabilities. We do have a lot of people that are terrified because historically in this country, when there have been disasters, people with disabilities have not fared well. Riskin says as challenges arise for the community, her organization has been in contact with Governor Jared Polis's administration. And so far, he's been pretty receptive to the extra challenges people with disabilities face. In Boulder, Robin Bolduck cares for her husband, Bruce Gogan, who has advanced multiple sclerosis. He's on a ventilator 24-7. He's paralyzed from the neck down. He needs 24-hour care. She says if her husband were to catch the virus, his chances of surviving are basically zero. So Gogan, who usually volunteers and does get out of the house, is now stuck. Uh, I'm a little bored. Stuck in the house. Bolduck says the pandemic is almost giving her PTSD. In 2009, their 12-year-old son died after contracting the H1N1 virus while recovering from surgery in the hospital. We didn't take the precautions we were taking now. And so I'm really happy we're taking these precautions to reduce the risk of me losing, you know, someone I love again uh, to a pandemic. Bolduck says what keeps her up at night now is the fear that the state will run out of ventilators and somehow ask Gogan to give his up to another patient. She says, in theory, they would understand. But that reality is terrifying. As COVID-19 continues to sweep through the country, people with disabilities and their caretakers certainly have a lot of concerns for their safety and well-being. But Julie Riskin, the director of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, wants Coloradans to see beyond those needs. We should be considered not just people who need stuff, but a resource. Um, we have a, a lot of people, quite frankly, that are used to living without a lot. Um, we have people who have over, because of their disability-related issues or lack of resources, have survived being homebound before. So we should be looked at as a resource. So far, Colorado has not issued a shelter-in-place order. But even without that, those with disabilities can only wait it out until the curve flattens. I'm Jessica Yarmoski, CPR News. To stop the spread of COVID-19, Governor Jared Polis has taken steps that would have seemed unimaginable just a few weeks ago. He has hit pause on entire industries, banned large public gatherings. Well, recently, CPR's Benta Berkland spent most of a day in the governor's office to see firsthand how he operates at this critical time. One of the first things you notice in Governor Polis's spacious office inside the state capitol is all the phones. Three cell phones spread out in front of him, and then a dedicated conference phone. Okay. This is Jared Polis joining. Hi, Benta. How are you? Good. 
Good. He was joining nearly all of the nation's governors on a call to get a coronavirus update from President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. Mostly on these, they talk for a while, and then there's sometimes a chance for us to ask questions at the end. While sitting on hold with the White House, Polis was also on one of his cell phones, talking with the department head to finalize executive orders he released later that day to ban elective surgeries and to close nail and hair salons, spas, and tattoo or massage parlors. We're adding the salon one. We'll put it in the one that affects both and just in the finding section, probably. And then if there's anything in the actionable section, too. Yeah, that's the best we can do right now. Okay, thank you. The governor showed up and... uh... And it was straight from one call to the next. A lot of progress is being made, so I look forward to speaking to the governors. Polis says he doesn't find the large White House calls especially useful because they're mostly staged for the media. He prefers to get on the phone with the vice president or the head of the Centers for Disease Control. He says the immediate need is for more protective equipment for healthcare workers and more coronavirus tests. And he doesn't want Colorado to be ignored in favor of places like New York City or Seattle. To unmute your line, press star six. Hi, this is Jared Polis. Can you hear me? Hi, this is Jared Polis. Can you hear me? You're looking well, Phil. It didn't work. You have raised your hand. Several Republican governors were able to ask the president questions, but Polis never got a chance. He signs off after nearly an hour and walks with his chief of staff down the hall to her office for yet another call, a midday update with some top state officials. Thank you. Good afternoon, Governor. Mike Willis here. The uh, mobile test site in Pueblo is ongoing. It's Is this a pretty typical day, these back-to-back meetings like this? Yeah, I started at the Emergency Operations Center for a couple hours this morning. I'm on site in different areas and, of course, here in the governor's office. So a lot of the work is being done over telephones, over uh, video conferencing. He and his staff methodically juggle actions he planned to take, exchanged updates on testing capacity and hospital preparedness, and discussed possible emergency medical equipment and how to deal with surging interest in an untested possible coronavirus treatment. One more thing, the president's been touting chloroquine as therapy. Uh, I've heard from like six doctors today that as a result of that, every all their patients are demanding prescriptions. So um, we should probably figure out uh, how to direct that towards those. While Polis spends a lot of his day gathering information, He also spends time sharing it with people, at one point hopping on a call with more than 500 Colorado faith leaders who asked him questions. Do you have any insights for us on how long we should be planning and preparing for not being able to gather in person? This is likely to be weeks and months. It will likely be in this situation. Governors across the U.S. have taken vastly different approaches to the pandemic, partly because of each state's unique circumstances. Governor Polis was the first in the country to set up a mobile testing lab and has closed businesses, but he has not gone as far as some other governors who've issued shelter-in-place orders. On yet another massive conference call, this one with 80 state lawmakers, Polis explained his reasoning. 
We don't live in a centrally command structure authoritarian country like China where people can be locked down. That's why this whole in place thing is not viable here. You're not, people are not going to, they're not going to be forced to not do what they want. We have to, again, focus on where they're congregating, where the virus is spreading, reduce those vectors, and we're using data and science every step of the way. So far, Polis's handling of the coronavirus has generally gotten a positive response from both Republicans and Democrats. He acknowledges the situation is taking a massive toll on Colorado and says it hasn't been easy on him either. He says many decisions have been painful, closing industries and putting people out of work. But Polis says in the end, as governor, he has to be able to act. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. And Benta joins us now, along with CPR health reporter John Daly, who also observed that day in the life, but from a distance through FaceTime. And welcome to both of you. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Benta, you've covered Governor Paulus since he took office last year. What struck you about watching him in this situation? It really opened a window on just how all-consuming this pandemic is for the governor and for a lot of Colorado residents, his constituents, The unprecedented mix of medical, economic, and social concerns impacting virtually every facet of life. And the governor is at the center of it all, and he's struggling this never-ending string of meetings and calls and making huge decisions. Did you ask if he got any sleep these days? You know, I I don't think he does, but I think that's pretty typical for him. Uh, Okay. John, uh, we should say that you had to join Benta and the governor remotely because you're self-quarantining. Yeah, that's right, Ryan. Our uh, 16-year-old daughter went skiing at Vail about 10 days ago. You know, this is actually the very last day of skiing before the resort closed for the season due to COVID-19. And, and you know, Vail is definitely a hot spot. And though our daughter didn't come into contact with anyone with the virus, as far as we know, we decided she should be in quarantine in the basement. And we've pretty much stayed and worked at home ever since. How is she, is she doing okay? Yeah, I think a little little bored. And, uh, you know, it's a little challenging to have a teenager in the midst of this whole thing uh, who's concerned about everything and her friends and all that. But yeah, I think she's doing all right. Uh, you have been covering all the executive orders that Polis has released. What was it like to watch how his office develops them? Well, uh, you know, pretty fascinating, really. Um, I think that it's just a, such a fast-moving story, and there's, it's, there's just so many elements to it. And uh, I think that uh, there's just so many uh, challenges in weighing the pros and cons. You have the public health uh, uh, impact of, of making decisions as well as the economic impact. Yeah. I mean, for instance, you know, decisions about what, what businesses should be stay open and which, and which things need to close. Uh, those are incredibly difficult decisions. And it's the kind of thing, as Bento was saying, that, you know, governors have not had to do for, you know, who, who knows, decades? When was the last time a governor had to make a decision like that about what businesses should stay open and what businesses should close? We've also seen mayors struggling with that. Uh, this week, I think of a Mayor Michael Hancock of Denver in particular. You know, one thing we heard in Benta's story was doctors getting a lot of requests for chloroquine, this malaria drug that's being tested as a COVID-19 treatment. John, can you tell us more about where that stands? 
Yes, uh, that drug has not yet been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for use for COVID-19, but the president's optimism has provoked a spike in public interest. And we just heard in Benta's story, Polis said he'd been hearing from doctors whose patients were demanding prescriptions. We know that an Arizona man has died and his wife is in critical condition after both ingested chloroquine phosphate and he did that in an apparent effort to stave off COVID-19. We should say that Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, he's the top national health official we've been seeing a lot on TV. He said there was only anecdotal evidence that uh, this might work against coronavirus and much more study is needed. You know, something that struck me listening to Bent's story is that governors are all often called on to be consolers in chief during tragedies. But you know, Polis is playing a very different role right now. I mean, I'm thinking of the call with the religious leaders. He's sort of the constant bearer of bad news. He's taken on the responsibility of telling people hard truths, urging them to take hard steps, Benta. And there aren't easy answers. No one knows exactly how long these restrictions will last, not even the governor, or how or when the economy might bounce back. Is there going to be a deep, deep recession? How the virus will evolve, what it means for the healthcare system, and how people are just going to keep managing through this. And, and, you know, Ryan, uh, Governor Polis seems to have a skill set that could prove valuable right now. He's kind of a nerd, you know, a policy wonk, right? He very much likes to dive into the details of things. And he seems to have quickly gotten up to speed on the science of all this. And he also comes from a business background. You know, this is such a complex and rapidly changing situation and and right now, in the midst of what is both a public health crisis and an economic crisis, that sort of knowledge and experience may turn out to be important for the governor. Bente, it seems like Polis hasn't been getting a lot of political pushback for his approach to the pandemic so far. Is that your sense, too, just briefly? It is, Ryan. People on all political sides have praised him for having a strong command of the facts. They've been supportive, but Republicans are starting to make it clear that they do have a line, and that's a statewide stay-at-home order. I think Governor Polis would see some pushback from Republicans if he does go that route. They worry that the government could do just as much, if not more, damage to the economy than the virus could ever do. And it's an argument we're starting to hear from President Trump and other prominent conservatives, this idea of Let's not let the cure be worse than the disease. And yet, John, doctors are asking the opposite from him, right? Uh, Yeah, that's right. The Colorado Academy of Family Physicians, this is a group that represents over 2,600 Colorado doctors and medical students. They sent a letter to the governor Monday. They want him to reconsider his resistance to such a broad order. The Medical Association fears that cases of COVID-19 could quickly overwhelm the state's healthcare system without more dramatic action. Uh, They're particularly concerned that those with symptoms can transmit and spread this virus easily without even realizing it. And they say that can severely affect the health system's capacity to safeguard people's health. So they want the governor to order everyone in the state to Mm. stay home or at their place of residence, except as needed to provide what the governor has deemed essential services. And so, you know, Governor Polo so far has declined to to, uh, issue this this kind of broad order, unlike the leaders of states like California and Illinois. John Daly and Benta Berkland, thanks so much. (laughs) 
Two psychologists now have told me to stop using the term social distancing. One of them is Ben Miller of Denver. He's with the Wellbeing Trust. I have an extreme aversion to the term because in a time like this where we need to be socially connected and the fact that we are now saying that we should socially distance, it just seems to be the exact opposite of what the remedy could be. We should be physically distancing, but socially connecting. Oh, Ben, people know what social distancing means in this context, though, don't they? Well, yes, but language does change our culture, and it does reflect how we think about certain ideas. I think that for this topic, what we just need to do is to highlight the fact that we must be more socially connected, even though we can't be right next to each other. Let's all chalk circles in the street and sit out and talk to our neighbors. Let's socially connect while just being physically distant. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I believe in comeback stories and second chances, and I believe in recovery. I'm Vic Vela. I'm the host of a new recovery podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering cocaine addict myself, and I've been talking to people who've made their own comebacks. I'm proud to be a PTSD survivor. A counselor in therapy has changed my life for the better. Listen and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org or wherever you get your podcasts. He's known as the Acoustic Ninja for his mastery of the acoustic guitar. Trace Bundy of Boulder wows audiences with his distinctive style, a blend of finger-picking, looping, and two-hand tapping that's as impressive to watch as it is to hear. Bundy has gotten millions of views on YouTube for his original music and his arrangements of pop, classical, and rock songs. His most recent album is Elephant King. deterred, though, by the distancing that defines the world today, Trace Bundy is scheduled to perform via YouTube live stream Friday. I spoke with Trace Bundy last May about his approach to music and about his nickname. You grew up in Buena Vista, Colorado. Buena. That was a good pronunciation. I'm Thank impressed. You. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody gets that. Versus Buena. How did you start playing guitar? So... Uh, my my brother was really into heavy metal and so he he you know would listen to all the you know metallica and megadeth and stuff and he 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 wanted to be able to play these riffs and so we were walking around town one day we were we were i think i was 10 years old he was probably 14 and and we saw a yard sale and we walked over and there's a, a little acoustic guitar just a really junky a little acoustic guitar and it was 10 dollars at this yard sale and and the way i remember it we both had 10 dollars or 5 dollars in each of our pockets so we pulled those out combined forces and we bought this uh, little acoustic guitar and what was the state of the strings do you remember they were horrible, horrible. terrible action on the guitar it was hard to play but uh but it did the job and i remember we we that same day we went to the grocery store which had you know the like rack of all the magazines and there was a heavy metal magazine uh like a guitar magazine rather that said like you know play these these five heavy metal songs and the first one on the list was by metallica and it was the song called one and uh we we grabbed that magazine and, and went home and, and learned uh, how to play One by Metallica on this acoustic guitar. <laughs> and you had had some exposure to music clearly before that then? No. I mean, no. I, I mean, I liked music, but no, no musical instrument, background, no lessons. I, I couldn't sing, 
piano, nothing. You consider yourself self-taught? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Your first performances were solo shows at coffee shops yeah. in BV. Yep. Uh, but the typical singer-songwriter material was not really for you. Uh, how, how did you start writing instrumental guitar music? Well, I've, I've, I've always been a terrible singer, and I still am. I, and and, uh, <laughs> and so I, I, I just stuck with the guitar, and I, I started, probably like most people, by learning other people's songs. So, you know, uh, Simon and Garfunkel songs, Cat Stevens, Beatles. I was really into, like, my, you know, old folk stuff. My, my parents had some r- records from when they grew up with, like, these old, you know, old kind of acoustic folk stuff. And, and so uh, I got into those, learned those kind of finger-picking patterns, and then each time you learn someone else's song, you learn maybe one little trick or one little uh, riff that, that you can kind of uh, maybe influence your, your writing. And tell me about embarking on your own writing. What was the first material you wrote? So the first stuff was, was just normal finger-picking things where you're trying to create a nice melody, a nice chord progression, maybe something kind of unique in there. And I did that for a while. And I'd play yeah, at these little coffee shops and, and with friends and stuff. And, and if you made like 20 bucks, that'd be pretty cool. Oh. And, then, uh, and then one time I was sitting on my bed. I remember this pretty clear. I was sitting on my bed and I started playing this guitar riff with one hand. And, and I remember looking at my, my, my right hand and I was like, I'm not even using this at all. Like, what could I do? And I reached over and I played like a little bass note with, with my right hand while playing a melody with my left hand. And, and it, this little song came together. It became the song um, uh, Dueling Ninjas. Acoustic Ninja, Trace Bundy of Boulder, is our guest. How did that nickname Acoustic Ninja come about? <laughs> that's, a, that's a funny story, because I, I wrote a song back in the day, and I, I named it Acoustic Ninja, just purely because I thought it was a funny combination of two words, you know? Acoustic, Acoustic and, ninja. and Ninja. They don't really go together <laughs> in any way. And, uh, and so the, the song became kind of popular, and a... Um, a newspaper up in Fort Collins wrote an article about me, and they it was entitled uh, "Attack of the Acoustic Ninja," and that was the first time someone referred to myself as Acoustic Ninja. And I was like, "Wait, I, that's not how what it's supposed to be. Like, I'm not the Acoustic Ninja." And and, uh, and that was many years ago. And, and then more and more people kind of start attributing that title, and and so it, it, it happened. Just stuck. Just, it just stuck. Yeah. Listen to your tracks. I often wonder if your hands and arms get tired. They do. They do. Yeah. They. The, there's certain muscles. It's funny because I, I I enjoy rock climbing as well, and I can't rock climb anywhere near like like it has to be two or three days before I play a show because it's the similar muscles. You're you're gripping the guitar, you're moving it fast, you're using your fingers, and all those fingers are tied into tendons throughout your arm. And man, it gets it gets sore, especially that song "Dueling Ninjas" because it's like you're 
you're like doing playing a really hard typewriter on your guitar for about four minutes long. Okay, show me your right hand really quickly. Yeah. Okay, you have grown out your nails, which is typical for a guitarist, but I have to think that's very difficult for a rock climber. Yeah, yes. And in fact, I, I don't grow out my nails. I don't like to talk about this, but these are fake nails. They're acrylic. So oh. I, I have to go to a nail salon about once every month and a half or two. <laughs> And that helps you pick. <laughs> that helps me pick. That's for no other reason. Yeah. So, so, so if you can imagine, it's like having five thick guitar picks on my hand, and and so I use all five of those. And uh, yeah. So for climbing, yeah, you lose a good kind of eighth inch of of uh, you know space on each rock. I'm sorry, I didn't know you you didn't like to talk about that. Well, but I put you thank on the you. Spot. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, now everybody <laughs> knows. <laughs> Okay, so those who've seen you play know that you have a very distinctive style. I mean, just the dexterity you have is astounding. As we said, you're self-taught. How would you say you developed your technique, though? You know, which kind of breaks the rules in many respects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly a lot of time sitting uh, alone with the guitar, just just trying to come up with any different techniques I could. And I mentioned earlier, you know, I do have a, a bad singing voice, which I thought was kind of my curse. Like, I really thought that every musician who's going to make it has to be able to sing. And but but I had a terrible voice, so so all of my effort went into the guitar, and 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 to kind of maybe compensate for my lack of singing, I tried to just come up with a lot of techniques outside the box that would be fun to watch, fun to listen to, you know, good sounding, good melodies, and try to, yeah. I know that capos play into this. Tell us what a capo is and help us understand how you use it and them, because you often use many. (laughs) So so normally a capo, it's just a, a, a clamp that will clamp down all six strings on the guitar. And then what I've done is, is customize them, cut holes in them, like made little tunnels through them, cut the end off with a hacksaw, bent them to different things so that they, they don't cover all six strings. They might only cover five, might cover four, maybe two. Um, and so you can, you know, anytime you're playing, you're like, this, you know, this isn't, this doesn't sound right. If, if I could have these two notes being played the whole song, you know, that would be cooler and I could do another better riff or something and so then I would make a capo that would do that. Here is a five capo song. It's Hot Capo Stew. (laughs) Yeah. Trace Bundy, you've had a lot of success in music and a huge social media following, all as an independent artist. I wonder why you decided to work without a record label. Yeah, I, I don't know what... Some, some, for some reason, I just was afraid of the record industry. I, I don't know if I heard horror stories of of artists just having the life sucked out of them by a record label or by by record executives. And I just thought... I think that's a common story. It, it, it seems no like doubt it, yeah. you would have heard yeah. it. Yeah. And so I thought, I, I want I want to buck the system. I don't want anything to do with the record industry. I just want to create music, develop a core group of fans around me. And if they like my music enough, they'll spread the word. And so it's been this pretty organic process for 15 years. But have record companies approached you and said... We want a piece of that. Um, I, I have, yep, have had a few, n- not any huge ones, not like you know, like the big 
major labels who okay. are going after you know the big pop stars. But uh, yeah, have have had some smaller things. That and come you've up. turned them away. I've 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 turned them away, or I've I've, yep, I've decided. You know, I, I there's there's things certainly that are helpful for a musician. You can't turn away everything, and so to have people helping you do booking, helping you with uh, you know your merchandise sales stuff like that is very important. And some of that is built into a record label, but to try to kind of piece that out in a way that makes sense for an independent artist. Okay, I want to talk about some of your covers. Here's one of your more popular ones. Let's see if folks recognize it. A lovely version of Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child Sweet of Mine. Sweet Child of Mine. Tell me about how you pick covers. Oh, man, I, I, I try to pick songs that are, you know, that I like, obviously, and songs with a recognizable melody, and then something that would be interesting to do from a fingerstyle acoustic guitar perspective, you know. And, and so with, with um, Sweet Child of Mine, that one started because I, lear- I learned how to play that that classic guitar riff using only harmonics on the guitar and so these harmonics are where you just lightly touch the string in certain places and the string vibrates in a way that creates this kind of bell like chime yes and that's it, the quality to yeah, that song. yeah thanks so for that's giving words to it yeah yeah uh, trace bundy thanks for being with us yeah trace bundy who grew up in buena vista speaking with me in may he's scheduled to perform via youtube live stream friday His videos have been viewed more than 43 million times. Thanks for spending time with us. I have to say, hosting the show, being with you each day, is helping keep me sane. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. 